The second reading is from the book of Colossians. As I just told the children, chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. It's the lectionary epistle reading for the day. What Stephen read was the gospel lectionary reading for the day. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your heart, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin this morning by saying how grateful that both Margaret and I are to have been welcomed back to St. Andrews so wholeheartedly. We do feel warmly welcome and at home here, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I also want to thank all of you who have reached out to us during Margaret's illness. This is a very tender time in our lives, and we are grateful for your compassion your love, and your kindness. Now, allow me to begin by telling you that, and some of you may find this hard to believe, those of you who know me, that I got pretty laid back the whole last year that we lived in Dayton, Ohio. Not this laid back. <laughs> I didn't even wear a robe in the pulpit. I didn't even wear a tie in the pulpit. I went into the pulpit with an open collar. And you know what? The sanctuary didn't collapse upon us. <laughs> so might I say that I'm feeling a little overdressed this morning. <laughs> and I also feel like telling a couple of jokes. Is that okay with you guys? Is that okay with you guys? Yes. A little girl 
needed $100 very badly. Her mother told her to pray to God for it. So she prayed and she prayed for two weeks, but nothing turned up. Then she decided to write God a letter requesting the $100. When the postal authorities received the letter addressed to God, they opened it and were so impressed that they decided to send it to the president. The president was so impressed, touched, and amused that he instructed his secretary to send the little girl $5. He thought $5 would be a lot of money to the little girl. Well, she was delighted with the $5 and sat down to write a thank you letter to God, which read as follows. Dear God, thank you so much for sending the money. I noticed, however, that you had to send it through Washington. And as usual, those morons deducted $95. (laughs) Thanks anyway. (laughs) May I tell one more? Is that cool? A priest, a minister, and a rabbi wanted to see who was best at their job. So they each one went into the woods, found a bear, and attempted to convert it. (laughs) Later, they all got together. The priest began by saying, when I found the bear, I read to him from the catechism and sprinkled holy water on him. Next week is his first communion. The minister said, I found a bear by the stream and preached God's holy word. The bear was so mesmerized that she let me baptize her. (laughs) Then the priest and the minister looked down at the rabbi who was lying on a gurney in a body cast, (laughs) obviously in a great deal of pain. It was clear that he had been mauled by the bear. What happened? The priest and the minister asked him, well, it was a male bear, said the (laughs) rabbi. And looking back on it, maybe I shouldn't have started with a circumcision. Is that a great joke or what? (laughs) You know, neither one of those jokes has anything to do with this morning's sermon, but I feel so much better. (laughs) First, a word about the passage from Luke 2 that Jesus, that Jesus read, that Stephen read a few minutes ago. Sometimes I crack myself up. (laughs) First, a word about the passage from Luke 2 that Stephen read a few minutes ago. We don't know very much 
about the boy Jesus, but this text gives us some insight into the subject. Now, on the one hand, you may be wondering why it took Mary and Joseph a full day to realize that Jesus was missing. But it makes perfect sense if you know that in their context, Families traveled in large caravans of extended family and friends. So when they began looking for Jesus, they realized he wasn't in the caravan. And as you can imagine, they panicked and rushed back to Jerusalem to find him. And where was he but in the temple engaged in conversation with the teachers? Jesus is presented here as less than a model son. But indeed a realistic one when it comes to pre-teenage children. Stephen and Allison were pre-teens once upon a time. And let me tell you that Margaret and I would have seriously considered wringing their necks had they ever pulled a stunt like that. That was a laugh line just so you'll know. I want us to be on the same page. But in this case, Jesus was in a sense making a break from his earthly parents. When Mary says to Jesus that she and Joseph has been searching for him with great anxiety, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, acts like it's a no-brainer why were you searching for me, he says. What's the big deal? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Referring, of course, to his heavenly father. Here's the takeaway from this scene as far as I'm concerned. Okay, two takeaways. On the one hand, even as a boy, Jesus shows us what it's like to pull oneself up to the full measure of who we are and to have a growing sense of who God is calling us to become. I personally don't believe that Jesus came out of Mary's womb on Christmas with it all figured out. Rather, he grew in the knowledge of God throughout his life. And one of the things that we see in this text is that even as a very young boy, Jesus was wrestling with who God was in his life. Here's the second takeaway, and this is where I want to dig in a bit this morning. Even at the young age of 12 years old, Jesus is already showing us what it's like to go against the grain. Or as I've suggested in this morning's sermon title, to live against the grain. In other words, to do the unexpected, to break with convention, and not to do what the world considers to be the, quote, normal thing. We know that Jesus did this in spades later in his life and it got him nailed to a cross, but the fact that he is already doing it as a 12-year-old is amazing to me. Jesus did the unexpected thing by not attaching himself to the caravan on its way home. 
but staying instead in the temple to engage his elders in theological discussion. Then we come to this morning's epistle reading in Colossians where Paul is really talking about living against the grain. Let me ask you something. Do you think Paul's word to the Colossians intersects at all with the way the world turns today? Do you think it does? Paul speaks of the Christian life in terms of clothing. And the clothing he describes is spiritual clothing. What are we to wear? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And above all, says Paul, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You want harmony in your life? Put on love. If you want things to go well with your relationships, then wear love. Then Paul really goes into the deep water when he says that if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Are you grateful that God has forgiven you? Then that's the no-brainer. Share it with others. We can also talk about the peace of Christ and gratitude because they form two major themes in this text, but I think this is enough to consider for this, the rest of this one sermon, don't you? Kenneth Sehested has suggested that this is not a first century call to civility. Paul is not saying, y'all play nice now, y'all, you hear? What Paul is talking about is a disciplined pattern of redemptive life together. In other words, he's talking about our life together in the church or in the home. In other words... He's talking about what we do most often with those that we are closely associated with. But you know what? If we wear the clothing of love, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience at home and at church, the chances are excellent that it will become woven into the very fabric of our lives and influence all of our relationships, indeed everything about us our entire outlook on life. Says it goes on to say that bearing with and forgiving one another is not for the faint of heart. This passage is not about conflict avoidance. Forget putting on a happy face and accentuating the positive, he says. This is about what to do when bare-knuckled emotional brawls break out. As we all know, there have been a lot of rancorous emotional brawls 
breaking out in the politics of our nation. Do you hear the political rhetoric these days? What do you think we should do about it? One option, of course, is to bury our heads in the sand and continue vilifying and demonizing those with whom we disagree. That contends Paul is not the way to go. What would it be like in today's political milieu to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony? Allow me to say that I don't know exactly what it would be like. I'm struggling with this myself. The gospel doesn't give us easy answers, ever. Typically, the gospel poses questions that we are then left to figure out based on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, by taking our cues from Jesus. We've just celebrated Christmas. And one of the questions that has been gnawing at my gut in recent days is this. What on earth does the newborn king have to do with the situation in our nation currently? One way to begin to answer this question is to affirm that we are all we are all in this American experience together. I've already said that I'm wrestling with this myself and don't pretend to have it all figured out. You'll be glad to know that I didn't come to church this morning with all the answers to the complex situation in which we find ourselves. But allow me, if you will, to be rather explicit about what I mean. There are things that our president says both to and about people that I personally find absolutely appalling. Now, I know that there are some of you here this morning who will not agree with me about this because you affirm the president and think, and think he is doing a good job and perhaps you think his public tweets, which some people find denigrating to his political enemies, are entirely in order. I don't agree with you on that. Let me be even more specific. We could stay here the rest of the day and I wouldn't run out of things about which to complain when it comes to our president. And there are things about which some of you would probably be in violent disagreement with me. But you see, our disagreement isn't the point. The point is that we are all in this American experience together. And we need, as fellow Americans, we need desperately to stop demonizing and vilifying those with whom we disagree. I feel like I'm sort of making myself vulnerable this morning. So while I'm on this roll, let me take it a step further. 
I'll be completely honest with you and say that I sometimes forget that the people with whom I disagree are also children of God, created in the image of God. And that all people, the Bible assures us in the book of Genesis, have been created in the image of God. And I wonder if the same is true for you. Do you sometimes forget that like I do? If we truly believe that all people are children of God, we need to learn to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all, with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, this does not mean that we are free, you and I, to turn a blind eye to the injustice in our midst, the racism that abounds in our nation and world, the brand of nationalism that puffs us up and says that we are superior to people from other countries simply because we are Americans, not to mention the blatant prejudice against so-called illegal aliens and others who are different. But while we must not turn a blind eye to injustice, we are called to extend to one another the grace of God given to us by the Christ child. You know as well as I do that it's not just the politicians who demonize and vilify the other side. Even ordinary run-of-the-mill Americans get in on the action these days as anyone who is on Facebook or Twitter knows firsthand. Until we come to the point where we realize that we are a big part of the problem, we'll never dig ourselves out of this hole we're in. And in my opinion, you and I and people like us are perpetuating this culture of mutual vilification and demonization. Every single one of us is part of the culture that enables this kind of behavior. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to live against the grain of such rotten behavior. And we are called against the live, to live against the grain of anything that belies the calling of the newborn king to forgive others just as God has forgiven us and to love the neighbor as the self. And when I say we are called to live against the grain, what I mean is that we are called, as I said earlier, to do the unexpected, to break with convention and not to do what our culture considers to be the quote, normal thing. Unfortunately, the expected, conventional, normal thing in our culture has become the deliberate denigration of people we don't like. But as disciples of the babe lying in a manger, you and I, called, you and I are called to make a decided effort not to live like that. Because you see, you and I have been given a different normal. And our new normal is a huge part of what we are celebrating in this Christmas tide.
There's something else of which I believe we are called to live against the grain. And that is the fear that is currently alive and well in American culture. This is a season of fear, not just in our nation, but in the global community as well. We fear another terrorist attack. We fear another shooting or another incident in which someone gets in a car and drives down a sidewalk for the sole purpose of killing people. We fear people who are different from us, like Muslims, for example, thinking that all Muslims are Islamic terrorists, which is a grand generalization that is both unfair and untrue. A lot of people fear those who are gay or transgender. Democrats sometimes fear Republicans and vice versa. Israelis fear Palestinians and Palestinians fear Israelis and I could continue this list of fears on and on. The point is we live in a world in which people fear one another. And I'm sure you've noticed that we get a daily dose of fear from some of our politicians in Washington. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote of the spiritual damage that fear causes. It crouches in people's hearts, he wrote, and it hollows out their insides and secretly gnaws and eats away at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others. As Peter Marty, the publisher of the Christian Century, said in a recent editorial, it's not an overstatement to say there's a fear epidemic in America these days. Swapping stories of fright has become our national pastime. It has always been true, he continues, that if you want to kill an idea, a piece of legislation, or another person's dignity, you just get people good and scared of what that ideal policy or person might do. In this season of Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus said over and again, fear not. Fear not. You and I are called to live against the grain of fear, but instead in the hope that the joy of Christmas brings us. We would do well to remember that in the Bible, God's response to human fear is, trust me, for I will keep you. I will keep your life. The psalmist assures us in no uncertain terms that the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. This is why Marty goes on to say that those of us who don't want our insides hollowed out or the biblical and moral ties that bind us to God and one another lean on a Savior. That Savior is the Christ child lying in the manger. We need not live in fear because Christ has been born. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He died on the cross and rose from the grave in large measure 
to set us free from our deepest and darkest fears. Gloria and Excelsis Deo. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen.